Peter Capaldi. Right, yeah. That doesn't sound Scottish to me, guys. Let me be honest with you. Yeah, he's Scottish. In the same way Italians moved to the United States, they moved to Scotland, <laughs> you know. That's not how it, how it works, Rick. America is a melting pot, so if you're going to leave your country of origin, you can only go to America. Right. You, you're Otherwise, supposed to leave Scotland, not not come from Italy and go to Scotland. You're supposed to leave Italy and go to America. Yeah, you can't go from Italy to Scotland because Scotland's where Scottish people live. Everybody from all the other countries came here, but they don't go to other countries. That wouldn't make sense. What, one of the greatest Scottish racing car drivers is Dario Franchitti, and if you see him talk, you know... It's just the Scottish guy talking, so. No, I think what I you think mean you're to wrong. say is I think you're wrong, all Chris. the best race car drivers are Italian. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a Ferrari? It started not made in, in, in Glasgow. Not made in Scotland. <laughs> Look it up. It started in Glasgow. I watched uh, Ford versus Ferrari, and so now, <laughs> I, now I hate Italians. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Season's greetings from the hosts of Lost and Found and Rewound. Welcome to a very special Rewind, where we will discuss the 1989 Jim Jarmusch indie classic, Mystery Train. I'm Chris Lost. I'm Found Jim. I'm Rick Rewound. We have a very special guest with us today, but before we get to our guest, we do have uh, our presidential segment to do, titled, An Update on the Turkey. President Donald Trump did pardon the turkey this year, much to Rick's dismay. If you'll remember, Rick wanted the turkey beheaded. On television. On television. <laughs> wanted a public beheading by the president. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Anyway, on to our guest. He's a painter, a writer, a film director, and a podcaster. He's fucking funny as all get out, and like Jim, has a magical soul. He's the only person to witness me nearly getting booted from Alamo Drafthouse. He's my fantasy football nemesis. He's W. Dave Lost. Welcome, Dave, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, guys. Listen, <laughs> Are you clapping every... for yourself? I was trying to make a bigger <laughs> noise for me. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the show. Listen every other week. Or whenever the show drops, <laughs> I drop everything truly and listen to the show. Spoken as truly a, a devoted fan. Yeah, so you know that. Yeah, you know he listens because he he's confused by it. And I have no idea what the numbering is means either. So, being a huge fan, and I still don't understand the numbering. And you guys don't understand it. Only Chris understands the numbering right. of the show. I mean, I I do a podcast about tacos. If there's one thing that I love more than just talking about tacos and eating tacos, it's talking about cinema and movies about trains. <laughs> so this is the place to be. Have you seen Runaway Train, Dave? You know what? I haven't seen any of the movies that you guys have reviewed on the show. <laughs> but you listen to the show? I can't find them anywhere. You know how hard it is to find <laughs> the movies on your guys' list? Well, where's your go to your video store? Oh yeah, <laughs> I could go down to the local video store. You're right. Sorry, <laughs> all available on VHS. <laughs> you got a beta. Now I just got to find a VHS player. Yeah, you've got a beta. That's the problem. <laughs> you introduced yourself to to Jim and Rick when you came on to the 
the the meeting here. Have you not met them before? Do you all not know one another? I don't, I don't think know. so. I, I no. stood right next to Rick at the uh, Lotus Pool anniversary party a couple years back, and I almost said hi, but then I got I got nervous and didn't want to bug him. <laughs> so I just so then and then he got up on stage and performed with you, and uh, I was like, oh man, what a performance when you guys played. Uh, uh, what was the song yeah. you did together? Wasp. Wasp. Yeah. yeah. I, and I took a bunch of pictures of that performance, if you need them, which was an amazing performance. But uh, I, I don't know if we met. I don't know if I, I ever got the courage to say hello. Yeah, I have that effect on people. They... <laughs> <laughs> and then I heard I, I, on the show a couple of weeks ago about you not wanting to, or something about not wanting to talk to people at shows because people tell you stuff about your favorite songs or albums and it really bums you out because those aren't your favorite songs and albums. <laughs> that, so. Well, that's just normal. Yeah, that, that comes with the territory. <laughs> no, yeah. No, I don't mind talking to people as long as it's not about me. I should have said hello. I should have said hello. should have. Well, I think Rick doesn't realize that he's intimidating. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, I, I think Rick thinks that people are trying to shun him when in reality they're just afraid to talk to him. Well, I, I explained this to my son recently, is that I, I have had numerous occasions where one of the low points, high points, just a, a moment in my life where I sat talking to someone outside of CBGB's and they were uh, talking about how awful my band was while I was standing out there. They thought another band that was inside was my band. And this was a person whose house I had stayed at on tour, slept on their floor. And then, yeah, I've had situations where I walk off stage and people don't know. I was. <laughs> Are you the t-shirt guy? Yeah, the t-shirt guy, and not in a not in a joking way. You know, that's what I would say that to somebody who just came off the stage after playing, right? Or they they say, "Where's Jim?" <laughs> yeah, Jim's Jim's got it worse. Yeah, people talk to Jim because they think that he's me. It's like something about me. I don't know what it is. No, when he popped up on the gym, when you popped up on the feed, I thought you were Rick. You guys look a lot alike. They could almost, they're almost look related. Yeah. <laughs> I like, so wait, so Rick's actually, I think his quote was when people, we were asking about compliments and when Rick said he gets compliments, he's like, but they're always wrong or something like that. So, uh, but the, in this case, the insults were wrong, right? This guy was insulting your band. He was wrong. It's a good band. This guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't mind compliments. I just don't like compliments that I don't agree with. So compliments are fine. <laughs> compliments are for the giver, not the receiver. That's the, the only thing you have to remember. It's for the person giving the compliment, not the person who gets the compliment. Rick and Jim were playing a show at Douglas Furs, Doug Furs in Portland, Oregon. Doug Fur, Doug Furs, Doug Fur, Doug Fur. No, no possessive. Okay, Doug Fur. In Portland, Oregon. Doug Fur Lounge, yeah. The Doug Fur Lounge. Uh, the night that a music video that Dave and I wrote and produced won Best Music Video at the Portland Comedy Film Festival just across town. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wow. And that's why Friend. you guys didn't come to the show, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we didn't come to the show because we were in Kansas City, but we did send emissaries. We sent the director of the video and we sent um, her husband. I've never been oh. to Portland. I really wanted to go to that. I think I was in, I might have been in L.A. at the time, not to humble brag, but we had a lot of uh, festivals we had to hit it like on the same weekend. Well, I got to see Rick and Jim play at Doug Fur at the Doug Fur Lounge later. 
So was that one? Okay, so that was the show where we didn't have an opening act, right? Because nobody wanted to open for us. And so we played. It was a great show, but we played like <laughs> everything we knew. Is that correct? It was great. Yeah, yeah. it was awesome. So you see, oh, even was... that I can turn into something negative, which is like... Yeah, you did. Nobody, uh, <laughs> nobody wanted to open for the show. Oh, no, we don't have an opening band. You guys just play. Okay, great. <laughs> Look, so I, I played a band, and... Um, while we can get people to open for us, we can't get people to come and watch us play. So <laughs> I would rather have people come and watch us play. I remember you playing to a nearly full room uh, with no opening band. I, I'd prefer that to an empty room with three bands, which is what I usually play in. <laughs> Dave, we have a segment on the show called Hot Seat. Is this a new segment? No, we've no, had this segment for years. I thought you were a fan. <laughs> You keep saying you're a fan. Does this have you... like a cool like opening like sounder like when the segment starts? No. Oh. Okay. It's not like it. It's not like any of us on the show do anything with music that we can just yeah. make music and use it in the show. I mean, we made the theme song, and then Jim made the loop that we use for the end of the show. What else do you want out of us? Sorry, I I, I got this one confused with with my podcast, which has all these different segments and like fun, like goofy <laughs> intros and well, we'll give you a chance to plug your podcast, okay. you know, okay. a little bit there. Dave, right. the hot seat is not about you asking us questions about us asking you questions. So here we go. Dave, you are a filmmaker. I've edited several of your films. Who is the best film editor you've ever worked with? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. Uh, Thelma mm. Schumacher does not count. Hmm. You have to have worked with her. Marsha Lucas. Uh, Is it Ror Rodrigo Hornblower or something? Who's the Beastie Boys? Horatio. Horatio. Hornblower. Hornblower, yeah. Is that it? <laughs> we'll go with that. Next question. Well, well, you, well, Chris, I would have to say, since you are the only one that I allow to edit my films, I would say that you are. Oh, uh, that's very nice of you, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I, it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I work for free and have the right. equipment. Right. <laughs> well, no. And that you have to constantly re-edit the films. And after. sometimes I bring and sometimes I bring my footage to to other editors, and they <laughs> say I'm not going to edit this piece of crap. <laughs> so I have to come back to you. <laughs> uh, you've listened to this podcast, Dave, where you. Your best friend, Michael, and my son have been our only guests. Who's the best guest we've ever had on the show? Uh, gosh. These are, this is really is a hot seat. <laughs> mm, I'm going to go with Thomas. All right. That's a good choice. Yeah. Good choice. That was a great little <laughs> couple sentences he said. Dave, you lost a lot of weight about a year ago. I recently lost a lot of weight. Oh, that's where I got all mine, right? I gained both of your guys' weight. That's great to know <laughs> took where it, all it came back. from. Yeah. I gained it all back in the uh, in the uh, current global event. So, look, you all look attractive. I wouldn't boot, I wouldn't do a podcast with people who aren't attractive. <laughs> um, do you think people consider me nearly as attractive as you now, Dave? And how about the coked up bartender at Harry's Pub? Ah. <laughs> uh, I think you've always been the most attractive out of all of the people in our circle. 
Of all the editors that you're... Of all the editors. <laughs> the bartender at Harry's... Wow, you uh, you triggered something there with him. Do you he want was... to tell that story, Dave? Do you want to, do you want to tell these no, guys what I'll the bartender... No, I'll just say that he was making really, really bad jokes, and Chris was not going to stand for it, and he almost destroyed the man's face. <laughs> He told the he told the bartender to take a walk out of his own bar out into the street or else something was going to happen. Instead of Chris going and cooling off in the street, he told the bartender to go cool off in the street. So I told him I needed 30 seconds. <laughs> so I told him to take a walk. Classic alpha male. Good job, man. Well, I wasn't being I mean, he was the one who said I was ugly. Oh yeah, he that's said what it was. He was taking oh. a picture with me, Dave, and Michael. <laughs> And said, you shouldn't be in this picture. You're not good looking enough to be in this picture. <laughs> what the hell? And so then he was trying about... to upsell Chris on some whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris was like, he's not having it. That guy, I, I, we've never been back to that bar <laughs> ever since that night. Scared of him? <laughs> I am a little scared to go in there and see him because I made such an ass of myself being so pissed off at him. But I mean, I, I didn't hit him or anything. It I was, was like just angry. A, it was like a Tuesday night, too. <laughs> he called me ang- he called me ugly and I just told him to take a walk. I didn't I mean it was, you know, I needed some space. I was insulted. Like just like you Rick when that guy insulted your band out. What did you say to him? Hey dude, I need you to take a walk. <laughs> just nodded my head. You're like never going to sleep on that guy's floor again. <laughs> I know. So- <laughs> <laughs> Listen here buddy, if you think I'm sleeping- Sleeping on your floor again. You think I'm going to take your your charity ever again? (laughs) Got another thing coming. Okay, last question, Dave. You asked me to write a Christmas song for the upcoming episode of your podcast, Taco the Town. Then you told me I am one of the many people you asked to write songs for the show. (laughs) My question is, who do you take me for? Well, you know, you're going to be the last song. You know, there's going to be this buildup. So you are the final. You're like you're the you're the final act. So there's opening acts. Right. People have agreed to to open for me. Well, yeah. I mean, who knows what I might get before the show? <laughs> you know, I've I've asked a lot of people for songs. I've only gotten three so far, and I haven't heard yours yet. So I hope it's a good one. <laughs> so it may not make the cut. <laughs> well, I've been working hard on it. I've got a question. What do you feel is the superior podcasting microphone? What are these, Chris? That's an SM58. A like beta. The, like the guys. A, a beta, beta 58. 58A? Sure, yeah. yeah. This one's been doing great for three years now. Yeah, and it's, it's what most of our guests have used on this program. Good. Most of the hosts used it. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I wanted to move my mic up to look just like your guys' mic yeah. into, in the little camera here so we could all match... I've told you before, I made the investment in purchasing this microphone. If I don't use it, it makes me feel even worse, right? I've, I've got to get some use. This is not, I'm not trying to be showy. I'm not trying to be an iconoclast. I'm just trying to justify the fact that I should not have bought this stupid fucking microphone. And now I can say, well, I use it on my podcast. It's perfect for a uh, podcast where we're going to be talking about Elvis. Good segue. Talk about Jim Jarmusch. Are we going with Jarmusch or are we going with Jarmish? You tell me. Because the one think? thing I 
the one thing I discovered last Tuesday. And you know, I'm a hipster cinephile who grew up in the 80s and 90s, running movies, watching them, you know, obscure films, comic films. Uh, as I looked at Jim Jarmusch's IMDb or pulled it up the other day, I thought, ah, I can't wait to see how many of these films I've seen. And I'm like, I've seen, I know I've seen Blue in the Face. I know I've seen Smoke. Of course, neither of those are Jim Jarmusch films. <laughs> he's, he's in them. So then I looked at the list and I went from his first film up and kept looking up and up and up and up and up and realized I'd only seen two Jim Jarmusch, Jarmusch films. One was... Gimme Danger, the Stooges documentary, and two was The Dead Don't Die, his most recent zombie, zombie movie. <laughs> Prior to last Tuesday, I had not seen any other Jarmusch films, but then I have now since seen every narrative feature of, of his. Did you watch I the Neil? You didn't watch the Neil Young documentary? No, I didn't have time. I watched like how many films? Permanent Vacation, Stranger Than Paradise, Down by Law, Mystery Train, Night on Earth, Dead Man, Ghost Dog, Coffee and Cigarettes, Broken Flowers, Limits of Control, Only Lovers Left Alive, Patterson, and then I had seen the other two. Do you have a favorite? Patterson. Patterson. Who's in it? Darth Vader. What's his name? James Earl Jones. <laughs> no, uh, the David, new Darth. David Prowse just passed away. Rest in peace. Peter Capaldi. Uh, Peter <laughs> The good-looking Darth Vader. Oh, Anakin Skywalker. Oh, well, he is good. Hayden Christensen. <laughs> How many Darth Vaders? <laughs> We've hit them all. Oh, you mean Jake Lloyd, the little boy, the little boy from <laughs> Phantom Menace? Is it a young new actor? Is this a newer movie? It's his second to last feature. The guy from Girls. Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Driver. Okay. You mean Kylo Ren, not Darth Vader? Sorry, Kylo Ren. I loved it. Oh, it was so good. Better than Mystery and Train? It was better than Mystery Train, but but not by much. I don't. I, I, I'm going to have to see Patterson, I guess. I, uh, Dead Man, I, I haven't watched it again, but I always liked Dead Man. Yeah, me too, yeah. Which starts with him on a train, Yeah, just like Mystery Train. The thing I learned about Jim Jarmusch is that every one of his films is awesome. Where is there a director where like every film they do is great? It's because he's he's not human. He's a vampire. I'm pretty convinced because I, about nine months ago, I saw him in person at the Art Institute in Chicago. He did a little gallery talk. It was probably in February, maybe. And it's just a little gallery. And I was about 10 feet away from him. And he's dressed exactly the same how he's dressed for 30 years. And he looks exactly the same. It's crazy. He doesn't look... He looks like he looked 30 years ago. He had the it's prematurely really, gray hair. That helps, yeah. right? But still, it's just like, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> it's just because he dresses the same, I guess, and his hair is the same, And but he doesn't. his face doesn't look any older, really. I, I mean, a little bit, but it's strange. Dave, you mentioned a Jarmusch-ism, which is uh, transportation. I made a list since I watched all these Jarmusch films Am I saying it wrong? Is it Jarmish or Jarmish? I always heard it as Jarmish. And then that time that uh, John Lurie was at the Art Institute talking about fishing with John, somebody asked a yeah. question about Jim Jarmusch, and John Lurie went, Jarmusch, Jarmusch now. Now he's Jarmusch. So I have a feeling that it's Jarmish or was until he became an auteur. Like all the different ways people pronounce Martin Scorsese or Scorsese or whatever it is. Yeah. I finally got Coppola right because I watched. 
uh, Apocalypse Now again in his intro, and he said his own name, I think. But in Italian, it should be Coppola, right? <laughs> it's always the second to last syllable. You know, hey, I, I took Italian in high school, so I should know. And it's, <laughs> it's, unless there's an accent mark, it's always the second to last syllable is the stress. So it should be Coppola. I've never heard anybody say Coppola. So I don't know. Did he say it that way? <laughs> no, he did not. For a say while, Coppola. people were Coppola. saying Coppola. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I said Coppola. And, and so clearly an Italian name. Where did he move? Not Scotland. <laughs> in Jarmusch films, there's, sorry, Jarmusch, Jarmusch films. People speaking in their native languages, musicians as actors, endings with the leads taking different routes which might be the visualization of the note and permanent vacation where the, uh, the lead says we're all alone. Smoking, uh, mostly cigarettes, fire implements such as matches and lighters, segments, uh, one-way streets, uh, traveling companions that bail on one another, a convention he uses quite often to cause tension, beautifully run down rooms and hallways, and then rich colors, black, and white. I'm realizing that Robbie Mueller, Mueller, the cinematographer, those, you know, if you've seen Paris, Texas, too, you realize how much of what you're talking about colors and even the black and white is Robbie Mueller. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. cinematographer obsessed now, apparently, and so I've, I've stopped caring <laughs> about directors, and now I just want to know about cinematographers, and it's, I definitely see a through line in a lot of his work. Vim, what are the Vim Vendors movies, right? That's what before and. Wings, Wings, cave, Wings, of Wings of Desire. Yes, thank oh. you. Yeah, I, I don't know if he that. did. Yeah. Maybe I was looking him up again. Yeah, when I was... And had, had he died or Actually, I don't know. I don't think he did do that. Maybe he must have, though. But he did He did the earlier ones, right. I think. And he did Repo Man. I didn't That's know that. right. That. Repo Man's <laughs> a beautiful... Yeah, it's got the colors, movie. too. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, oh, To Live and Die in L.A. Oh, he did that. I didn't know that. that. You were talking about rundown hallways. I mean, just the way he captures like the bleak city streets and it's always a rundown area of town. Wide shots just capturing all the ugliness of parts of American cities. And it's beautiful. I love just the pace of his movies too. There's there's no rush. It just takes its time. You're following people walking around, following people driving around. And you don't feel bored by, I mean, I just love that about his films. Just and when like the scene in, in Mystery Train where you just follow everyone around Memphis, just walking by those old rundown um, like the Stax Records, the Lamar Theater, and all those empty lots. And they were saying that was like at a time when Memphis was run down. Like he was capturing Memphis as Memphis was in 1988. He was down in a pretty rundown part of town too. I guess they tore that hotel down like the next year because it was falling apart. It, it it was torn down the very next year after they shot there. Like even in Down by Law where he has that shot of the New Orleans street with that big painting on the, the side of the building when he's picking up his stuff in the street. I just, just the way he shoots rundown buildings really like as a kid seeing this movie for the first time just really inspired me to go out and find rundown buildings and and start doing photography of rundown old theaters and parts of town i think as a kid seeing that I'd, something i'd never really thought of as art before or as beautiful and and just in those movies i just that's what i love about his his films the two of you should subscribe to dave's instagram 
What is your Instagram handle? Is it public, Dave? Yeah, it's uh, W Dave Keith. Dave's pictures of old buildings and old signs and everything. Rick, you'd love it the way you love like the way that stuff is replicated in, in, in accurately in certain movies. This is the real deal. I'm amazed at all the stuff that still exists that probably should be gone by now that you can still get pictures of. It's it's gorgeous stuff. And Jim, I think you'd like it too, just as a as a photog yourself. What I loved about the movie, watching Mystery Train again, is also realizing how a lot of that is lost, though, too. You know, there's still some of it left, but, like, I remember the world looking like that. And I was in Memphis two or three years ago and ate at the restaurant, you know, that uh, time. Oh, yeah. Cool, the arcade. um, Yeah, the arcade. So the restaurant, yeah, that was kind of tied to the hotel. That whole neighborhood looks completely different now. You know, it's it's, it's very, oh, yeah, it's very gentrified, right? Uh, It's it's all fixed up. That's Yeah, and so you have that old restaurant in there but it's it's been all upgraded and the sidewalks look beautiful and and the whole neighborhood looks really really nice and that's something you had when you were on tour because you always when you play shows in a band you you always play in the worst neighborhoods in a town right it made me nostalgic for that it really made me realize wow how much things have changed yeah like in being on tour like you said in in the south especially was like that like, I, I don't know if we, we, we played in, Mem- I know we played in Memphis, but I'm trying to think if I'm combining it with maybe it was Knoxville or something. But I seem to remember wandering around early, really early on in one of our first tours. And like you said, the, the shots, the establishing shots, walking down the street, like you're in a, ca- a car driving alongside the sidewalk. I remember, I think we played in Memphis or Knoxville, but I think it was Memphis. And the street looked just like that. You know, it was ex- it was just a few years later, obviously, but it was the same, just kind of rundown area. Like Lafayette, Louisiana, and places like that. We, we played at these incredible, like one place was like an old feed store, like in kind of right in the downtown Lafayette area, but it was just all these little tiny shacks, basically. People living in, you know, just classic Southern, 105 degrees and humid, and everyone's sitting out on their porches in these little shacks and we played in this tin shed basically <laughs> just a few blocks from downtown and, and it was all yeah these little neighborhoods like that or yeah it was another neighborhood we played at a weird cool little club would fit perfectly with the neighborhood in mystery train it was that same kind of didn't seem dangerous you know it was it was run down and poor but it wasn't dangerous you know <laughs> it was just kind of sleepy the sleepy southern little neighborhood one of the things you know i'd listed all those jarmish isms one of them is run down neighborhoods in various cities because i at first thought oh this guy's a new york filmmaker i'm going to be watching new york films like woody allen or something but then i was like wow this guy can pull off that sort of romanticism with the rundown neighborhoods in a bunch of different cities that he's clearly not from he's definitely worldly he hangs out with cool people all over the world it's very early on it's like he'd put all these actors from different countries maybe didn't speak english or you know in in his movies and made friends obviously in all these places that's another distinctive thing about his movies are they're all very worldly i think when i first saw a mystery train it had to be in sixth grade just flipping channels on cable and it was back when bravo actually showed movies it was like a cable channel that showed indie films. Before all this crap it shows now, all these reality shows, it was an indie film channel. I remember I was on the the first vignette with the Japanese teenagers, and I was like, is this a foreign film? Because I'd never seen a foreign film before. And then the next segment has the Italian lady in it too. I was all new to this, and I was like, I got to watch this movie. I kind of came in halfway, and I didn't know the name of the movie. I think for about five 
five years, I thought the name of the movie was Last Train to Memphis. I don't know where I got that in my head because it doesn't say I could never find it in the cable guide or on the TV guide of what that movie was. Because back then you didn't know what you were watching. You know, you were just flipping channels and uh, you'd have to do some research maybe at the library to find out what the name of that movie was that was on TV last night. But yeah, I thought it was a foreign film. And I loved it. I just loved the way he incorporates that into all his movies. And I think he said that he'd never been to Memphis before, before he wrote that movie. He just took a train there, started walking around and just started writing the movie. And I think he did the same thing with Down by Law. He'd never been to um, New Orleans before. And he just started writing it with his first time there. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue, but that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're going to love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. Sometimes when I get down on films on this show, a lot of what I criticize is the writing. I think if the writing of a movie is bad, it turns me off, or if it seems contrived. A couple observations. One is, he writes all his films. I think that's why they are so good. And, you know, Rick, you're always talking about the auteur and and how they have complete control. I think the fact that he has complete control of the film through his writing and he's such a great writer is why his films are so good. And and Dave, to compliment a point you made, I wrote this down when I was very tired. It's kind of pretentious, but this was an observation I made about Patterson. To Jarmish, everyday moments aren't mundane. They are beautiful if captured accurately. And Jarmish has a tremendous respect for the individually important soul of every living being. He doesn't need conflict to honor how profound we all are always. I remember being a real narcissistic, or maybe I still am, narcissistic human being and thinking, hey, does everybody have a like a consciousness and a life like me? Like every human being has their whole story, you know, their family and their backstory and their thoughts and their... It was like a, you know, I was obviously a younger person when I was thinking of this, but truly a narcissistic thought. Like, why wouldn't everybody have that? Jarmish, it seems like he completely understands that. And every one of his characters, even if they're just like laying in bed, doing nothing, is doing something incredibly interesting and compelling because I think he's honoring that. Whereas bad writing, bad filmmaking... It's boring when somebody lays in bed because the writer or the actor or the director doesn't know how to convey the importance of every moment of every person's life. Is this a, this isn't making sense, is it? No, no, it does. I actually people have said that about his movies is that he it's very similar to what you're saying. I think you're you're onto something there. The thing that he does is he he writes movies 
for specific actors. He doesn't write the movie and then go cast it. He said he goes in knowing that this actor is going to play this role. He writes for specific actors instead of doing casting sessions. I think he said he's only done one casting session ever. He just knows who he wants in his movies, and he has a great eye for picking out actors that visually fun and entertaining and also great actors that are so natural. Like That's the thing about his dialogue, too, in all of his movies. It's so natural. It's not forced that people don't have these big monologues, fake monologues like that are in some indie films. It's just all natural, and I just love that about his movies. It's it's like how people really talk, and they're not acting. Like there's some actors, like uh, what is it? The, his very first movie, The uh, Stranger Than Paradise. Permanent Vacation is the first one. Stranger Than Paradise is the second one. Yeah. He, I mean, the, the actors in that, that's not like... You're not watching actors. It's like a documentary almost, you know? Mm-hmm. Back to my point about um, using musicians as actors. He's, obviously, clearly, he hangs out with a bunch of musicians. Like, no, come be in my movie, right? And they're not bad. They're good. Like, even if they're not good actors, they're compelling to look at. The things they say sound natural. It doesn't feel like John Waters' movie where when he puts bad actors in the movie, they're clearly bad actors. I mean, these are all really good people and not they're not actors. Joe Strummer is great <laughs> right. in Mystery Train. <laughs> Plays the best, like that whole that whole segment. I mean, those guys, those three guys together, that's some of the best drunk acting I've ever seen. <laughs> Maybe they really were drunk. And then screaming Jay Hawkins as the uh, the oh, clerk, yeah. the hotel clerk. He he went and uh, I guess he he uh, used his song in Stranger Than Paradise, right? Yeah. And then yeah. he he knew he wanted to use him in this movie and I guess he found him living in some trailer and he had no money and he said I really want you to be in this movie he he, he paid him some money for using the song and then he paid him for this movie and I guess Screamin' Jay Hawkins always wanted to bring his uh, skeleton uh, the Henry the skeleton to the set every day <laughs> and he said no Jay uh, he, he doesn't need to come to set he's like are you sure I think I should bring him because he has that skeleton head he, he has on stage with him. But he was great. He was hilarious. Those two guys mm-hmm. were hilarious. And I didn't know Spike Lee had had a brother and sisters. That's Spike Lee's brother. Yeah. And yeah, his sister really? has, has been in stuff yeah. too. Yeah. Tom Waits is the uh, radio DJ. Did you see that? He's the radio DJ yeah, in Mystery Train. That. He plays the same guy that he was in Down by Law. Oh, I didn't realize that. Because he does oh, that little spiel cool. in the uh, prison cell where he tells him, I'm a DJ. And if you yeah, listen, it's the yeah. same exact guy, yeah. Oh, I kind of got thrown off when he started doing films with real actors. I think it was like Broken Flowers. That was probably my least favorite film of his. And, and it was all the actors. I was like, yeah. Jesus. That's I where I kind of lost, lost him. I, I remember watching Broken Flowers, and then I don't think I ever watched another, except for the, the Stooges documentary, but I don't think I've watched anything more recent than Broken Flowers. Yeah, I made a note that Bill Murray was way better in the like five minutes he's in the limits of control than he was in Broken Flowers. I, I didn't get, get him in Broken Flowers. He, he didn't nail that part that well. I didn't believe it. Yes, I like, well, Ghost Dog was good. That yeah. was yeah, a, that's a real actor right I always there. like that. Yeah, that's definitely. What was his most successful Hollywood movie? Was it Ghost Dog or was it Broken Flowers? Yeah, I think I Broken Flowers made the most amount of money. I thought I was looking that up. Ghost Dog, uh, interestingly enough, had Her- Henry Silva in it from yeah. uh, Sharky's Machine and yeah. Cannonball Run 2. Was he one of the gangsters? 
Yeah. He he was. He's, and actually, Ghost Dog, <laughs> I wrote, flies in the face of my Jarmish uh, assessment with its litany of stereotypical Italians. <laughs> like, that was the thing. I, I didn't see Jarmish playing to stereotype at all in his films. Uh, but that one, he absolutely, he did a lot. Do you guys have a favorite segment from Mystery Train? The Japanese kids is always, is well, the most, that's what I always think about. It's right, you know, the start of it and... It's very sweet. I love the three of them at Steve Buscemi at the end, and especially, can't remember his name, who I guess he died pretty young, uh, Will Robinson. Yeah. Rick Aviles, or? He was a stand-up, yeah. wasn't he? I, I remember his voice a lot from movies yeah. back then. Like, he had that distinct voice. Yeah, and he was great in, in that scene when they get, by the end, when they're just, with the whole thing with him <laughs> ranting about, Lost in space, yeah, that's all. That's a great part. And Rick Aviles had a short career that ended with uh, Waterworld and the MTV movie Joe's Apartment, and also he was on Equalizer, the show Equalizer with Wow, our friend from Wicker Man, uh, and he was also in the Cannonball Run. That's what I remember him from. He was he was in Cannonball Run. He was uh, was he with Terry Bradshaw? <laughs> oh man, he. He was like one of the mechanics. Oh, yeah. That's, oh, that's, yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah. I just remembered when I was looking at my notes about brothers and sisters, also Lorraine Bracco's sister is the Joe Stormer's ex-wife. Dee Dee. The talker. Yeah, Dee Dee. Buscemi's yeah. sister, yeah. 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 That, I think this is very peak Buscemi in this movie. I mean, that's when he, I think this is right when he was at his best. I think this is my favorite role of his. And I feel like this is the movie where I first saw him i know he did some stuff before that but this is the movie where it was like oh who is this guy kind of thing out of all the people in the movie to think that he's he's the one who's the most <laughs> you know it came out because my kid came in and was like is that steve buscemi like an 11 year old knows who steve buscemi is right and and the fact that he is such a weird i think he jumped made that jarmish jump right so he jumped from being that weird character you know, like John Lurie or uh, Richard Edson, you know, that's just kind of this odd New York guy that doesn't he look like a... Sonic Youth. <laughs> right, right, right. Richard, Richard Edson, the yeah. original drummer of Sonic Youth, right? Yeah. The yeah. guy, the other guy in uh, Stranger yeah. Than Paradise. Yeah. He's the first drummer. And who's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off um, is right. one of the... Uh, Drive, driving the Ferrari. Yeah. yeah. The fake, fake Ferrari. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Jarmusch is a, has a band, doesn't he? Yeah, something rabbits. When I saw I saw them at, when I saw them talk at the Art Institute, it was the night before they had played. And actually, it's some you know they they start having shows in the fancy Art Institute of Chicago, and in like the trading room the year before was like Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon. They each played separate shows. It's definitely they're getting all the cool New Yorkers to play. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing is he came out of that really important era in New York, yeah. and so the n kind of no wave all the crossover there. So, you know, um, Basquiat, you know, was in bands. He was, I can't remember what mm -hmm. band he was in with. And then, you know, you got like Ann Magnuson and all those, those oh, people, yeah. uh, Lydia Lunch, you know, they, they all kind of crossed over. It was just this kind of mix of, of musicians and filmmakers and artists and the lines were super blurred. He's definitely of a scene that's not just film. I think he's part of a art movement really. You know, that kind of mm -hmm. no-wave art movement. Yeah. One of my favorite reviews of Dead Man, which was like, you know, oh, it's, it's boring and everything like that. And the soundtrack is Neil Young dropping his guitar for two hours. <laughs> 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 I was like, 
Yeah, I, that's that's great. It's a great soundtrack. Yeah, I, have, I have that uh, LP. I've got the do- the soundtrack record. The double. It's a double LP of him dropping his guitar. Uh, it's great. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you guys, as musicians, have you ever recorded or wanted to record at Sun Studios? We played at a club right down the street, and I remember just walking by it. Yeah, yeah. We we never. Our no. first drummer before Jim was in the band really wanted to do that. And this, I think this was before they had like, you know, a package deal or anything like that. It was like, my dad knows a guy who can, we can record at Sun Studios. So I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. But we'd have to drive to Memphis <laughs> in 1988 when this movie, yeah, it probably would have been a great idea. We probably would have been in the movie. Um, <laughs> But uh, I love that scene with the uh, with the tour guide yeah. that's just running through everything so fast. Like that's exactly yeah. how they talk when they do those tours. <laughs> Have any of you guys been to Graceland before in Memphis? No. Yeah. I'm, so as I, I said, went as a child, no. But yeah, I and I, I went there. Yeah, I went there a few years ago when we did not go to we did not go to Sun Studio and we did not go to Graceland. We went to the uh, Civil Rights Museum and everything like that. We did the Lorraine Hotel. Yeah, yeah, and we did all the, the that stuff, but I realized we did not uh, feed my inner nerd at all going there. <laughs> I, I went to I did I have been to Graceland, and the two things that stuck out to me were um, the firing range. And is so his, Graceland is is a very small, it's home. tiny, I mean, yeah, and the city's yeah. grown up around it, so it's like this tiny. I mean, you're thinking mansion, and it's a tiny house because it wasn't it was a big house in 1955. You know, it's not a big house anymore and he had a a racquetball court built off the back of the house you know or a saw out it's an outbuilding i love that racquetball court it's the coolest racquetball court in the world so that actually there's three three features the racquetball court with this huge like satin couch with a full bar so you can see elvis like getting a drink sitting on the satin couch and just watching people play racquetball (laughs) well i think he died right after playing racquetball so that's what always freaked me out when I was there. I was like, oh, man, that's, he kids, played racquetball. Kids, kids these days don't understand racquetball. That was like when it, it just appeared on the scene. Like I can totally imagine Elvis, I need a racquetball court. Like within a week after hearing about racquetball, it was like in the early 70s when that all took off. And it was like all the racquetball places, all the health clubs, m- mania. So, yeah, that's perfect. I, I can totally see a cool racquetball court in Graceland. Like one of those things in movies, too, like from that era. Obligatory racquetball scene in the 70s film. So the racquetball court was there. It was a two-story thing. On the back side of it, he had, like, big posts, like you'd see sticking out of, you know, if you were looking at, like, a movie about a bay with a bunch of boats pulling into the bay. You know how they have those big like wooden a, posts that the pelicans are sitting on or whatever? Like a wharf. Uh, or right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he had a bunch of those lined up in a row, and then he would sit on his balcony on the back of his house and shoot guns into a target down into that thing. So an errant bullet would just stray into the racquetball court. <laughs> so I don't know, it wasn't a very good plan. So that struck me. And then when you go in his house, he had a jungle room. The jungle and it was room, this, yeah. Yeah, it was like this exotic plants and fur and weird shit. The TV so. room was was rad. The TV room in the basement with the six TVs and at the time is like amazing if you had more than one TV. And that that's the room where he like shot the TV and they still had the <laughs> the shattered TV that he shot with his gun. Yeah, the only other person who had three TVs was the president of the United States. You'd always see the president sitting there and he'd watch all three networks because there were only three television mm-hmm. networks. So yeah, three TV was a sign of great wealth and importance. 
Well, and now I just pull up three browser windows on my monitors <laughs> and watch th- three football games all at the same time. I'm like, I'm like fucking Elvis. I'm like, yeah, you're totally like, like Elvis. You've got your own little Elvis TV room going there. We're all Elvis now. <laughs> We're all Elvis. I was laughing at the scenes where Elvis, the Elvis picture is in every hotel room because I was recently over the summer, I was on a road trip in Springfield, Missouri, and I was staying at some old Route 66 hotel and they had a picture of Elvis in the motor court room because Elvis stayed there, I guess, once in like 1957 and they just advertised the heck out of it and uh, they actually have an Elvis room there and it was just like mystery train because Elvis is staring down at you the whole time and it has him like in his band and it says Elvis stayed here and the date on it and what the day the uh, concert was and it's just a huge selling point to that motor court have you you guys ever seen the the documentary the 1970 whatever the concert elvis that's the way it is or yeah, something that's like that the way it is that yeah i always think that was amazing i awesome. haven't seen that in several years but the, when i finally saw that i was like oh this is cool it was just so great to watch early documentary stuff and i just love the band rehearsing for the shows with that guitar player what's his name i forget i forget his name i was but just about to say that that like the so thing great. I realized was that his guitar player was fucking awesome. Yeah. And I was like, I, I used to always think country music was just like, you know, just like people just playing the same old shit, strumming on chords and banjos and whatnot. When you start to listen to great country music players and... Whoa, I mean, that's a... Yeah. They're incredible. And that guy was particularly... Bert, Burton? Is his name James Burton? Burton, yeah. Is it James Burton? Yeah. Yeah. And Elvis is getting shocked by the microphone constantly. And he keeps singing. You know, he's like touching. He's like, you know, getting zapped. And he's like, his guitar isn't grounded. You know, he's got the polarity wrong. And But he keeps doing, he, he he just keeps, you know, he soldiers on. And he, But he's he's getting that, you can t- tell that tingling. And he's still singing. And but I love it when he can't remember his lyrics. And he's just kind of fumbling through the lyrics and just gets them wrong and just laughs it off. And all the band laughs and. And he always has a handkerchief to wipe himself down. He's just sweating his <laughs> ass off. Yeah. And the creepy guy, the fan, he's not fan. He's like the head of the, the fan club and is threatening, you know, it's like telling the filmmakers, you know, you better, you know, do this right. You know, like basically threatening us. Like if show him respect in this movie, if, you're, <laughs> you, if this movie doesn't come out right, you know, so it was, he was this very hostile fan. Well, that's how I was at your shows. You know, I'd go up to the sound guy, whoever it was, and kind of give him, you know, I'd say, you need to take a walk for about 30 seconds. And when you get back, we're going to have a conversation about how you're going to do sound tonight. Jim, you don't use a microphone. Is that why you're afraid to get shocked? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was terrifying. Seeing the king getting shocked like that. This movie was shot in 88 and Elvis had only been dead for 10 years. And that was kind of at the time when the whole Elvis is alive thing was was really big. Like all the Elvis sightings and stuff. I remember they have specials with Bill Bixby. He would host Elvis is alive specials <laughs> and they'd be on like major television networks. The whole ghost Elvis scene in, uh, in Mystery Train, it predates the kind of the ghost Elvis scene in uh, was it a uh, True Romance has kind of a ghost Elvis. I guess he's more of a inner voice Elvis, but it. I always liked the Elvis in Mystery Train better just because he was he was like, "Excuse me, ma'am," and then just disappears, and that's all he says. That's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Pop quiz, gentlemen. Elvis the King was dead for ten years when they shot Mystery Train or debuted it. How many years has the King of Pop been dead? Ooh. Nine, five. 10? 11. 
11. 11. 2009. Wow. Crazy. That's horrifying. <laughs> Rick, Rick, you have discerning tastes. You're pretty hard on, on films and directors. How do you feel about Jarmish and his catalog? Oh, I love him. And he's actually, you know, part of my in, independent film rant, which is that, you know, when I saw Stranger Than Paradise in a theater on campus, not even in the film society, right? So it was a really important moment in the early 80s where independent film, black and white, everything we talked about, Jarmusch, you know, anti-80s film and seeing that playing in the campus cinema, but it was a commercial cinema, whereas you used to see arty films when the cinema club or whatever had their night, you know, every Saturday night, they'd show a film in a, you know, a dorm or something like that, right? So actually seeing it in the theater and having people go see it was a really amazing, powerful moment in indie filmmaking before Clerks, right? Stranger Than Paradise was really profound. And so for me, it's, it's just kind of an important, important moment where that crossed over. And then the bookend to that is, and I love Wes Anderson, but I remember sitting and watching Rushmore in a commercial theater in that same town, but the campus theater was gone by then. And thinking, wow, this is an independent film, but all this is is a good film made by someone who's not famous. And it's not an action film, so therefore it's an independent film. But 25 or 30 years before, a Wes Anderson film would have been a commercial film you know, for grown-ups, right? And so that was when I realized that indie filmmaking was no longer this underground movement. It was kind of the place where people who could make a good narrative film that wasn't about somebody getting shot in the head. Indie film now is a farm team to commercial or Hollywood filmmaking. It's no longer this purely underground, interesting art. It's a farm team. And so that's... Which is what happened to indie labels. Yep. Is they all got purchased. Sony tried to buy my label. And I turned them down. 60 grand they offered me and a job. And I think it was Rose, maybe, who had said something to me once about, yeah, we know all these people who they bought their labels for $60,000 and then they gave them a job. And six months later, they don't have a job. They don't have their label anymore. And then, you know, in working with Warner Brothers to license a record that I licensed a couple of years back, the guy showed me, well, here are all the labels we own. And it's just literally just logos. He's like, we just slap one of these logos on a, one of our releases based on which is the most appropriate. So if it's an indie record, even though we're a major record label, we slap this indie label on it. And so like Sony Pictures has their indie film division and Warner has their indie film division. And you're right, they've just sort of gobbled them up. There's no such thing as indie anymore. Yeah, and that's the thing is I, I remember this band that Jim and I were in that was a different band. There was an indie label that was interested in putting out a record for a very little money, complete control. I'm not talking about you, Chris. This is, this is years ago. Uh, <laughs> it's the same story. <laughs> no, 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 no. Very little money. And I was like, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to sign away this record for $4,000 in perpetuity. And the representative for the guy said, well, this guy is building up a catalog. That's, that's his business model is he's going to build up this catalog and sell it. <laughs> and so he has to have these records in perpetuity. That's, that's a deal breaker, right? If you say, well, no, let's do this for five or 10 years. And it was like, no, we, this is the whole plan. Some people are doing it for the love of it. And then it gets semi-popular and then it becomes a business. Why is uh, Mystery Train your favorite Jim Jarmusch film, Dave? Is it because it's the first that you saw, or is it truly 
the, your favorite? It's just very nostalgic for me. It might be the first indie movie I ever saw, and it really captured me and got me on the train to watching more <laughs> independent films. I remember Bravo would always show Slacker and this movie, and then they'd show this documentary about uh, Robert Johnson, this guy going uh, is a, on a quest to find Robert Johnson. And they'd, those were like the three movies. I remember one summer, I just watched those all the time. And it was like, I can't believe there's a cable channel showing these cool movies. It's, it's funny. It's got great acting. It kind of has really influenced my filmmaking and my photography. And just it's just kind of inspired me at a really young age. It just made me laugh, too. I was like, I didn't know there could be movies like this. I mean, I was watching, you know, mainstream stuff. And I really didn't ever seek out other Jim Jarmusch movies. I've watched them since, but but this one just always was always my favorite. And this is like a question you always ask on the show. I might be jumping the segment, but um, would you recommend this film to people? I recommend this movie to everyone I meet. So <laughs> I just think it's it's hilarious and just very, very, very well done and enjoyable. So you think this film should be found. So definitely not lost right. and definitely found. And then I'm assuming rewound. Do you watch rewatch it often? I do. You know, and when the global event first started, I just started watching all of my old favorite movies. And I rewatched them all, like Mystery Train and Slacker. And I just kind of went back and started watching all of all of my old standbys. So another one of my favorite segments you do here on the show is the list part where you guys list what you've watched. I mean, I created a list. I don't know if you're going to do that. Yeah, tonight, let's but. do it. Let's do it. Let's let's get your list. You want all the movies I've watched? Ever in your life. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> if we could start from what's the first movie you... Well, first answer this question. What's the first movie you've ever seen? Oh, I didn't know. Is this the new segment? Where we want your list, but we want you to start with a first film. What's the first film you ever saw in a movie theater ever in your life? As a child, we'd go to the drive-in, and the first movie I remember seeing was Empire Strikes Back. Oh, okay. And then subsequently, from the next film on till today, what were the films that you watched? So what did you see the next week after Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, no, uh, sorry. I keep uh, another segment. Well, something you talked about in a recent episode, best James Bond theme. <laughs> Yes, what do you got? I'm going to throw in uh, my two cents. I'm going to go with, uh, for your eyes only, Sheena Easton. <laughs> wow. wow. Or you only live twice. Those are my two favorite Bond themes. Oh, that's a great song. Just wanted yeah. to put that in there. What are the parameters around your list? Is it the films you've watched in the global event? Films you've watched this summer? Films I remember watching during the global event. Okay, I watched the number one comedy film of 2020. There haven't been very many films released this year. Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh, I watched that. <laughs> terrible. It was a ter terrible movie. Uh, success Succession, season one and two, HBO. It's a great show. I went on a Coen Brothers kick and saw watched Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. I watched uh, Paper Moon. Oh, yeah. Which was shot in Kansas. Go. I never knew it was shot in Kansas. Beautiful. It's a beautiful black and white oh, movie. Yeah, so is it beautiful. black and white? Yes. It is yeah. black and white, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I get that confused with Nickelodeon, which is not good. No, Nickelodeon <laughs> is right. the weird, yeah, hybrid of What's Up Doc and uh, Paper Moon. And it has Burt Reynolds, but and he Burt doesn't Reynolds, have a mustache, and a Burt, right? Burt Reynolds movie, but he doesn't have a mustache. So it's so yeah. disturbing. Oh, the movie. Yeah. I, I think That's I, what I felt, too. Yeah, I obsessed about it in earlier. If, if you were a fan of the show, you would know that early on I obsessed <laughs> about it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I obsessed about Nickelodeon in one of the early episodes, I think. Actually, Dave was about to tell us that he hated this podcast where a guy obsessed about Nickelodeon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Not realizing. Yeah, I heard some podcast this guy was just talking forever about Nickelodeon. What do you know? I can't you guys talk about Ryan O'Neill a lot, and I thought Ryan O'Neill was actually pretty good in Paper Moon, but otherwise, I don't think he's a very compelling actor at all oh no he's a uh, tabula rasa he's a blank he's yeah a blank but he is really good in paper moon so that's the thing as i always start wondering yeah. is there something there just have to have another member of his family in the movie to <laughs> right. right to work uh, off yeah of. gosh yeah. she was amazing in paper moon i mean but she was right she in, the story, in the story is though that they they shot a lot of film you know yeah it was like it took a long time that's oh, peter really? bogdanovich's story it's like i should have won the oscar it's like i think <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich may have actually said that. I went on a little Zemeckis kick and I watched Used Cars, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future Trilogy, and then his newest movie, which is so bad, Welcome to Marwin. Oh, yeah, I did. I, I saw the documentary, movie? the original. That's the thing. Is that what's... what's yeah, the documentary is great. Amazing, yeah. Did he do... It's so bad. <laughs> did he do the airplane, the pilot movie with uh, Denzel Washington? Yeah, Is that flights. Zemeckis? I actually liked that movie. I was surprised that I liked that movie. Well, again, I go back to my Ryan O'Neill point. Denzel Washington and Ryan O'Neill are both attractive. So, I mean, if people are, we've talked about this before. If people are attractive, they're good people. And I would also argue if people are attractive, they're good at what they do. So I don't know what you're talking about Ryan O'Neill being a bad actor. And Denzel Washington, everybody thinks he's a fantastic actor because he's fantastically attractive. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a Denzel Washington movie theater. Oh, you don't think he's theater worthy, cinema worthy? Yeah, I don't know if there's ever been one that I've been like, oh man, I gotta go see this new Denzel Washington movie. I need to think back. I saw Malcolm X in the theater. I know that. I saw Equalizer 2. I think Scott and I went and saw Equalizer 2 in the theater. Yeah, and you guys invited me to that, but I was like, I haven't seen Equalizer 1, so I'm not going. Oh man, those are great. Those are great. He is so attractive in those films. <laughs> I, I did a couple movies I'd never seen. I'd never seen the original 48 Hours. <gasps> and I know that's what? one of your favorites, Chris. <laughs> now, now, now we set off Chris. Wow. That took, took how many I, episodes to set off Chris? And I had never seen Pretty Woman. And it was on cable one night. And I was like, I'm just going to watch this and see what the big hubbub is from yeah, 1990. There's no reason to watch and, uh, Pretty Woman. No, that one movie was, yeah. oh my gosh. Wait a minute. Both of those actors are attractive in that film. You guys are really going off the rails I think rails Richard here. Gere and uh, Ryan O'Neill come from the same school of bad, <laughs> no acting skills. People say I look like Richard Gere, or I used to look like Richard Gere when he was young, and when I was young. Chris, if you, keep, if you keep going, getting grayer and you poof your hair out a little bit, you're going to be Jarmusch. <laughs> I would love to be Jim Jarmusch. I, I, I have no chance. I don't have the, the human sensitivity that he has, but he is, I would love to be him. Gary Marshall directed Pretty Woman, right? So that's yeah. that's the Gary Marshall factor, is that Gary Marshall movies are not good. Supersedes. <laughs> <laughs> I watched a really bad Netflix movie that was super depressing called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Has anyone oh, seen this? Yet? I have not, but I've heard about it. Ooh, it is so depressing. Yeah. Not good during a global event. But was the was it good bad or bad good or you just didn't like it? Well, it's Charlie Kaufman. 
Oh, okay. That right? I was. I, I forgot. Okay, I was thinking of the other one. It's like his first movie in a while. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I have a Charlie Kaufman problem, which I've. If you've listened to the, if you ever listened to the podcast, I have a Charlie Kaufman problem. <laughs> What's the Charlie Kaufman problem? I don't. I, I'm suspicious. I think he's got a problem with women. His artiness hides a lot of that, but I get a strong misogynistic. I finished season four of Fargo, the latest season of Fargo. Oh, Did you guys watch that? I loved it. Did you like it? Yeah. I've heard people not like it. I'm in central Illinois in that weird, isolated bed and breakfast or oh, rooming house. Oh, when they go to Kansas, when yeah. they go on the When they actually go that out. Epi- that that's, episode was amazing. I that's in that uh, Tawanda, Illinois. That, that wow, that's you can, um, you can go. You can go there. You, can, you could book a room there tomorrow and go sleep that's awesome. in, in that. I was wondering where they that, shot that. That's yeah. cool. They, um, just being from Kansas City, a lot of the historical stuff, of course, is not historic. It's all made up. Nothing's accurate. Like even when they go on the Kansas road trip, a lot of those towns aren't where they say they are, and a lot of them aren't near Kansas City. Like they say they go to liberal Kansas, and that's not close to liberal. That kind of stuff I have to just block out just because I'm, a, I'm from here and I know it's not there. But it was great. I loved it. It looks like neighborhoods that are here. I live in Kansas City, so um, there's a lot of neighborhoods that lo- still look like what they shot there. And, and those were all shot in Chicago, right? Yeah, almost everything was done. In this, that, I can't remember what the name of the studio is up in Chicago now, the gigantic one, and then all the street stuff, neighborhood stuff, except some of it is central Illinois. Like some of the smaller town stuff is down south. I really liked it. I, I loved mean, I it. thought it was. I, I did. It was a great season. I did think so. There were eleven episodes in this season, and I thought, oh, you know, they could have just done ten. Right. <laughs> That's the only thing I noticed was like, oh, it feels feels like yeah, you maybe didn't need to do eleven. The woman from uh, I'm thinking about ending it right is in yeah. yeah. She was the best part of the show. Her and the daughter of the uh, family that owns the funeral home. I wish they would have had more scenes in the show. Um, but yeah, the the nurse character. She, she was great. She's the star of the season, I think. And everyone's favorite Coppola, Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> right. Uh, Sophia Coppola is in the film, isn't it? <laughs> That's my favorite Coppola. Have you guys watched the new Godfather 3 recut yet? Are you going to watch it? Oh, gonna, oh, uh, Want to open up the Godfather 3 can of worms again? <laughs> I, I wanted to watch Godfather 3, but I was busy watching Jim Jarmusch films. <laughs> Over the course of the last, I had to get every film in before this podcast, so it's all I watched. Tim Heidecker's stand-up special on YouTube. It's amazing. Hmm. Season five of the Eric Andre show on Adult Swim. And instead of doing finishing my list, I have some Mystery Train fun facts. You want to do some Mystery Train fun facts? Screaming Jay Hawkins. Guess how many children he has fathered. <laughs> Eleven. That was my guess. Jim? Seventeen. <laughs> 40 children. Oh, wow. All proved by uh, DNA tests. They are all his actual children. Wow. He put a spell on a lot of people. <laughs> that song. The more I think about it, it just upsets me. That's irresponsible. <laughs> it's irresponsible. That is very irresponsible. Again, that reminds me that Michael Lindsay Hogg, who did Let It Be and Rock and Roll Circus, the Rolling Stones, who's like a filmmaker, claims that he's actually Orson Welles' son. Yeah, there's been a couple guys that claim they're Orson Welles' son. Pop quiz, Chris. guys. Who was the best band in the rock and roll circus? I'm not going to allow anyone else to answer. It's the who. There's no, no argument. Dave, it's a, Dave it's a great performance. I think that who performance is really good. I would Jim? say that's probably yeah. the best performance on film ever. Yeah, but no, you're all wrong. It's Jethro Tull. Oh, go to hell. <laughs> what about the John Lennon performance? You oh. think that's kind of... 
I, none of that is so the who's performance first off is astounding and is the reason why the film didn't come out for 25 years right it's like yeah oh. they blew him off the stage yeah oh so amazing live that performance is live at the beginning of the ghost segment or a ghost with nicoletta luisa the wife there's a casket there she's uh, got her husband in that coffin at the airport and people are putting like down by laws the movie before this movie and she you know she's with roberto benini and people are wondering if that is roberto benini oh in that coffin oh, wow yeah and then there's an sense. amazing shot at the airport where they time it i don't know how they did this there's there's no visual effects where they they have that shot where she's walking and the plane takes off in the window it's one of the most amazing shots because there is no way they could have timed that that had to just be and and that's um, my question so all of this and, and with the train too right so all the lighting that's that's what i started was again cinematography i'm hyper focused on that scene with the airport and then also just all the scenes in the train, right? Mm -hmm. And so they've lit that on film, and they shot all that, and they got that all right. Yeah. I, I would even argue, just e not just the timing, but just being able to get the lighting exactly right. It's like so, so impressive. One of my favorite movies of all time is Kess, K-E-S. It's this British movie from early 1969, and it's all, it's this, you know, grim heavy movie and but it's all filmed in yorkshire like north england and there's only one real actor in it everybody else is just local people even the star it's all natural light and it's one of the most amazing movies from a cinematography viewpoint it's like all indoor and there's absolutely no artificial light at all and it just looks amazing i gotta and see that chris it's menges menges He's the guy who did, he did Local Hero, and he did Killing Fields. So writing and cinematography, and probably editing too, if you have those three elements, you've got a great film. I'm with you, Rick. I think the cinematographer is more important than the director. I wouldn't say they're more important, but they don't get enough. They don't get I think Sharky's Machine's look is one of the things that captivated me about that film more so than the direction or the acting, right? I mean, it was all kind of same old, same old, but it, it was gritty and there was a definite style to it. And you said that it's a cinematographer, a known cinematographer. So I think there's something where cinematography could save a film that isn't very good. And in this case, you've got a great writer who knows how to direct people, whether they're actors or not. I'd argue probably better at directing people who aren't actors than actors, which Dave, I think you do an outstanding job of. I think that's one of your strengths as a director. I remember one time Dave and I were shooting a film and I walked up to these actors and I gave them a five minute diatribe about what their characters were doing, you know, what their motivations were, where they worked. I got to give them their backstory. And then like, we didn't get the scene right. And Dave walked up to the actors like, you need to smile more. And then we got like a perfect <laughs> shot. I was like, all right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay over here and work on the special effects. I'm going to let that guy tell the actors what to do. Yeah, does does Jarmusch still use Robbie Mueller for his movies? I believe Robbie Mueller is dead. Oh, he is. Yeah, he just died. Oh. It was two years ago, I think 2018. Yeah, I just noticed that. I looked him up earlier, and he didn't do uh, Wings of the Desire. He did uh, Until okay. the End of the World. Coffee and Cigarettes... And it was only one section of that. That's the last film he did. Hmm. And it looks like he stopped making film, stopped working in 2003, 2004, and then died, yeah, two years ago. What did you think of Coffee and Cigarettes, Chris? I thought Coffee and Cigarettes and Broken Flowers were kind of the dead zone in a lot of what I watched. Coffee and Cigarettes was sort of patchy, you know, good stuff and then some sort of average stuff. And Broken Flowers, again, was just slow, a little slow. 
But The Limits of Control, fantastic, beautiful movie. Only Lovers Left Alive, gorgeous film. Incredible acting. I mean, Tilda Swinton and then the guy who plays Loki in those Avengers movies, who's a tremendous actor, pairing up. I mean, incredible. And then Patterson, just so beautiful, so simple. So I don't know who shot those films, but they're they're great. They're really beautiful. Does this movie make you want to do more train travel? Yeah. <laughs> I'd use the train to go from Bloomington, Illinois to Chicago quite a bit. And then also when I lived in Champaign. And so I love the train, but the train that comes through Bloomington Normal, you have to get the right one. There's one that's just like an Illinois train, like between St. Louis and Chicago, but then there's the mm-hmm. one that comes from Texas. And so the one that comes from Texas is full of people who've been on the train for 24 hours <laughs> and they're insane. <laughs> Literally insane. And the train looks like a child's bedroom, you know, with just food and stuff strewn everywhere. And so... Like the Polar Express. I was going to say a college dorm. A college dorm. Yeah. Like, haven't you guys ever been on a train before? Jesus. (laughs) Get a hold of yourselves. It's it's, it's terrible. Terrible. But Jim and I, I don't know if Jim remembers. Jim would have been super young. I think I was five. Do you remember taking a train trip to Texas? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that was, that, was, that was one of the great experiences of my childhood was, was taking the train. But I look it yeah, up we had now. Sleeping, and, sleeping cars. Yeah, sleeping yeah, cars. Few, you look that up, and for like a family of four now, it's like yeah. prohibitively expensive compared to just cramming yourself into an airplane for 200 bucks each or whatever, right? You know, it's like the train. It's just like, oh, it'd be a great experience, but really do I want to spend half of my or all of my vacation budget on the train? It's funny when I watched... Um, Stranger Than Paradise, it reminded me of a weekend where Jim and our friend Matt and I all just got in a car and drove to Springfield, Illinois for the weekend and literally had a Jarmish-like weekend (laughs) with Friday night was a completely bizarre, surreal story. Oh, that's, you know, remember the titty story, Dave? That's where the titty story is from. Okay. Is from the Friday night and then Saturday night uh, was was a completely different like a complete. It was just like we talk about segments or scenarios or how Jarmish breaks up things. Saturday night was a whole different cast of characters and a completely different scenario uh, and just totally bizarre and wonderful. But anyway, Stranger Than Paradise sort of evoked that memory. One of the best parts of Mystery Train is after they shoot the guy in the liquor store and they just drive rockets rockets red (laughs) rockets red glare yeah okay and they just start drive they just drive around memphis drinking that butchers in the in the truck and it it goes on for a little while and it's just them aimlessly driving around at night on the street and it just kind of brings up you know memories of like when you're driving around with friends at night looking for something to do of course, not after you've just shot a guy at a liquor store, but um, <laughs> it it it's uh, I love that part of the movie. I really love that part of the movie when they're just kind of driving around town. Jarmish does bullet holes really well. All the gunshots in Dead Man and all the gunshots in Ghost Dog, and I forgot that there was gunshots in uh, Mystery Train, but they're all like really horrific. They're jarring, just the way the blood sort of bubbles up and sort of pours out of them. Yeah, Dead Man, wow. That one has a lot of uh, yeah. graphic. Oh, and, and Ghost Dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of people get shot. Yeah. 
I had it in my mind that once I heard the first gunshot or the first time in the first scene, I was like, oh, crap, that's right. Steve Buscemi dies in this movie. And I was like, oh, no, he doesn't. Of course not. It's a Jim Jarmusch movie. Yeah, it's so just it's a funny gunshot to the leg. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's to a funny character. So it's a funny scene. And it says everything about I've been conditioned, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, somebody will die. And that was it's not true, right? It's it's like, yeah, it's exact. Well, somebody did die. I guess the well, maybe the clerk did the convenience store clerk die. No, 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 no he didn't so. die either. No, no, he lived. Tom, yeah. Tom Waits says. Guy is, yeah, that like movie. The, the police set the, the in the morning. It's like he's taken to the hospital and they're looking for three people. So. <laughs> The scene, too, where the Italian lady is the weirdo, the Tom Noonan uh, <laughs> kind of comes up to her and talks to her at the uh, at the restaurant. That part, as it when I first saw it, I was like, oh, no, what's this guy going to do to this lady? <laughs> it really freaked me out. And then it nothing happens with it. It's just kind of, it was scary there for a minute. It's like, oh, no. And then she walks out into the street, and they, they like, confront her in the street, and she gets away. But, yeah, it nothing too bad happens there, which is really refreshing and different from other movies. Tom Noonan is like being typecast or, you know, what he thought was like, right, he's in Manhunter. He's the serial right. killer, right? So, and and then this. You see how it. tall he really is in that scene, yeah. man. He is a <laughs> Just, tall, skinny guy. That was so I, creepy. He plays a really good creep in this movie. He's probably really into it. You know, it's like, oh, cool. I'm in this Jim Jarmusch movie and stuff. But still, it was just, he's such a creep and the other guy is even more of a creep and oh yeah and the the uh amazing uh costume you know <laughs> whoever they're they're clothing they're like the you know like the wild and crazy guys right. you know like like uh Steve silk, Martin, silk but they're shirts creep, they're they're just like the dark wild and crazy guys their, their shirts are wide open and they're just amazing but it was 1989 i was thinking back and it's like i guess there were still people maybe dressed like that but i don't know it was just so extreme for sure yeah i I was when i was watching permanent vacation there was an actor in that film leaning against the wall in a hallway i think maybe in a police station or somewhere frankie faizan who was in a ton of things like i think it was like 250 credits on imdb and he's still working today he also was in an episode of the equalizer and he possibly may be the only actor to be in all four hannibal lecter films so the three new ones and Manhunter. He was in all four wow. of those movies. <laughs> Rick was saying earlier about Stranger Than Paradise, seeing that for the first time, and it, it was really a big deal. It was like I was in high school, and the only place that showed it was downtown. So I, I took, I could get on a train and go downtown and go to the fine arts, and that's where I saw Stranger Than Paradise. And it was so. As a sophomore in high school, you had the presence of mind to take a train to downtown Chicago and see Stranger Than Paradise, the second Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah, well, it was the first to me. It's really the first. I'd never heard Permanent of Permanent Vacation was not well known. It's, it's like his student film or something. But then so. how did you... So that's even more amazing. How did you even know to go see it? Did you read a review was, or something? It was a big was deal. A buzz. There was a buzz art, about it. Yeah. yeah, art film. It was just kind of like a cool... It was the cool new movie. And it was different. And it was, was already aware of that kind of stuff, I guess. Were you listening to Sonic oh. Youth at that point? <laughs> Maybe. Probably not. It was 1984. I yeah. was listening to... I started listening to Sonic... I'm assuming you listened started listening to Sonic Youth before me. I started listening <laughs> to Sonic Youth in 1986 when I bought Sister on... Actually, 87, when I bought Sister on CD. It was actually the first yeah. indie record I ever purchased. That and so, yeah. Up on the Sun. 
I saw, yeah, I saw them live at the Metro in 86. So it was like the evil tour. Jim liked them more than I did. I had Bad Moon Rising. I remember when it came out and I didn't like it that much, but Jim went to see them and said, oh, they're they're really good. And so it took (laughs) me a while to warm up to them. They are really good. You should check (laughs) them out. Yeah, if anybody hasn't heard Seneca, you should check it out. (laughs) I just watched a documentary on AMC about uh, movie palaces. Did you watch that? No. It's really good. It it, uh, talks about a lot of the old movie palaces in Chicago and how they're trying to save them and like the up, uptown, the uptown, probably. yeah, that's the yeah. one. That's beautiful, and I guess yeah, it's, and it's all falling apart or yeah, just so much water damage. That's the one they're trying to save because the uh-huh. the entryway to that place it looks like a. I mean, it really does look like a castle or a palace in there. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, there, it was it was cool. It, was, it talked about a lot of the ones in L.A. and, and Chicago and how they're trying to save the old uh, the old movie mm-hmm. palaces, but. Oh, I found another uh, Mystery Train fun fact I forgot to, to read. There was rumors that there was supposed to be a trilogy of movies, so it was going to be New Orleans, Memphis, and then the third movie was supposed to be Kansas City, so New Orleans was down by law, uh, Memphis was Mystery Train, and then he was supposed to make a Kansas City movie, and he, he says, eh, probably I'm not going to make that, so <laughs> he's not going to finish the trilogy, which kind of sucks because... Uh, I guess in an interview he said, um, I, I've heard Kansas City's got some cool music, but he's like, I don't have a movie written for that. So, <laughs> How are you guys holding up in 2020 without seeing movies in theaters? Because obviously you guys are frequent moviegoers, and I'm, I'm really missing the, the movie-going experience this year for sure. I bought a 4K TV last week. That's how I'm holding up. <laughs> <laughs> and Jim just goes. <laughs> I have this suit, the special space suit kind You've of thing. You've seen Sonic the Hedgehog but... 70 times. <laughs> My son and I went to uh, see Tenet when it came out. I, that was the first time I went out to a public place, took a chance. So that, that was the thing is like I'm pretty strict about going out and going places and everything like that. But then somehow I convinced myself it was a good idea to go to a movie theater. <laughs> in the middle of this and go see Tenet. How was it? Was it worth it? Was it a oh, good yeah. movie? Yeah, yeah. No, it's worth it to watch a movie like that on a big screen. IMAX. I snuck out and saw uh, Bill and Ted face the music. That was the one movie I saw during the uh, the uh, global event. So I have a hard time in my house getting completely lost in a movie. It's There's something about the enforced you know, isolation of mm-hmm. being in a the theater, right? And focus that really is is special and i'm worried that that's going to go away i i love watching stuff at home but it i i do realize that there's an extra layer of life real world there that prevents me from getting completely lost in in a film dave is there anything you'd like to plug before we go and we well you may do you even want to mention your real name because we haven't done that yet either oh yeah my name is w david keith uh i have a podcast called taco the town where I review taco places in Kansas City and beyond. Okay, so it's Taco the Town, not Taco the Town. It's Taco right. the Town. Right. So it's more like yep. Paint the Town? Taco the Town? Uh, taco, T-T-T, T-3, Taco the Town. <laughs> not Taco the Town. Right. Taco the Town. Right. Yep. Is it Taco the Town or is it Taco the Town? It's Taco <laughs> the Town. Oh, I thought it was Taco the Town. You did? 
Yeah. No, that's a bar. That's a that's a, like a bar. No, down I, the street. I'm not saying talk of the town. I'm saying I thought it was taco the town, not taco the town. You got it right the second time. <laughs> you nailed it, and you're the I executive producer of the show, and you just figured out how to say the show's name. You know what's amazing is that ever since I've stopped being involved with the show, I continue to be the executive producer. It's the it's the greatest executive producer position I know. I should ever hold. I should be really uh, PO'd at you guys. You guys, this podcast stole away my executive producer away from my show. <laughs> I'm still writing music. For Lost your show. and found and rewound stole my executive producer. This is what you've been doing, Chris, since you've not been on the show. You've been. This is where you you've gone. <laughs> Isn't that the story of the guy? Is it Sam Simon who like did the uh, original Simpsons stuff, but then was not involved for most of the run of the show, but just made millions of dollars hand over fist? Yeah, and his right? name's still on it. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's what Chris is getting. He's he's yeah. he's still getting the millions that we get from the show, <laughs> but he doesn't get to eat the tacos anymore. So yeah, I'll be back. I'll be back. We're, we're planning a, you know, it's, it's, it'll be a great return. It'll be a triumphant return to the show when I come back. Um, but I, this thing kind of got out of hand. This, this show, <laughs> I had no idea what, the, I thought this show was going to be 12 episodes, 12 months, uh, and just 12 great reasons to hang out with these two guys in their childhood home eating Lito's pizza. Delicious Lito's pizza out of countryside. And if you're feeling um, a little, get a little, you know, you're, trapped at home and you're feeling hungry you know don't don't worry about maybe giving into that urge and getting yourself a Lito's pizza they're fantastic just look them up in the book or order uh i think it's Lito's pizza they're in the yellow pages right they're in the yellow pages yeah look congrats on the sponsor that's huge that's a huge sponsor is he do you guys get to eat pizza i guess you don't get to eat pizza together anymore for the main episodes we do okay every main episode which took, we've had which took place in the past so you're you were eating pizza right. in the past. Well, and the future. There's and still four more to go. What's really great is that the sponsor is giving us all this money and they don't care that two hours and twenty minutes into the episode the sponsorship <laughs> happens. <laughs> Usually sponsors want it at the top of the show. They don't mind. Two hours, twenty minutes, that's fine. Yeah, I mean that's what everybody knows who listens to the show where that's the sweet spot. <laughs> that's that's what everybody's waiting for. It's like that's when the diehards are listening. Yeah, yeah. It gets good in the last five minutes. Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.